Would you stand or remain standing as we hear the word of the Lord from Mark 10, verses 32 to 52. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we would like you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them, called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be the first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. Thank <clears throat> you. 
Thank you, Linda. It really is an amazing part of the story, <laughs> that passage, this passage that we're looking at today. Um, let's pray, and then we'll jump into it. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for um, Mark and Peter, who recorded this account for us of the things that, um, that Jesus said. And so we ask now that you would enlighten our hearts, open our eyes, that we would see clearly, that we would hear, that you might prick our consciences and our, and our hearts, um, that we would respond to your call um, to come on the way with you, to follow you in this way of service. And so we pray for that, that you would do, do what we cannot do by your spirit. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this is the last week of our series that we've been doing um, called The Way of Jesus. Uh, we've been looking at Mark chapters 8, 9, and 10, focused on Jesus teaching his disciples between the moment that Peter says, you are the Messiah, uh, until he gets to this Sunday, the, the um, entering into Jerusalem. We've been tracking all of this teaching that Jesus does, and the emphasis from the very beginning, if you remember my initial illustration, was my Steeler fandom and how that's a way of life for me, not just a thing that I do, not just a side, but it's like it, it's, it's my entire way of life, and that's what Jesus is inviting his disciples into, is an entire way of life following him that's characterized by these things that we've looked at. And I said that there was three big categories. There's, the first category is this category of being with Jesus, and we saw that that in, in Jesus' teaching here in Mark, being with Jesus is being on the way of the cross, where Jesus says, we're going to, to Jerusalem to die, and he invites the disciples to follow him in this way of self-denial. And then we saw that being with Jesus also means listening to him. It's from the, the transfiguration where the voice of God is heard saying, this is my son, listen to him. So if we're going to be on the way with Jesus, we're going to be listening. Our, our way of life is going to be a way of listening to God. And then we saw that it's also a way of dependence, the activity there being prayer, that prayer is maybe the, the most fundamental action and activity of a Christian is being in conversation with God. That's being with Jesus. And then the second category is becoming like him. So we're with him, but then we don't just stay with him, we actually begin to change. And I don't know if you tracked this, but the three categories, the three things that we looked at were the way of examination, the way of community, and the way of simplicity. And those three ways are God transforming our relationship to ourselves in the way of examination, our relationship with one another in the way of community, and our relationship with the, the world that God has made. That's last week, the way of simplicity is this idea that if we're following Jesus, it's going to transform the way that we interact with all of our stuff. That's becoming like Jesus, so we're being changed. And so our being with and our becoming like Jesus is not just for us, and that's what we're gonna see today, that this third category is the category of doing what Jesus did, that to follow Jesus is to be with him, to become like him, and then to do what he did, to follow along, that there's a purpose and an action that goes with our being with and becoming like Jesus. And so today, we're gonna finish our series um, with just one way that goes with doing what Jesus did that can then be multiplied into, and we'll, there'll be lots of time in the future to talk about all of the many, many ways that this plays itself out. But one today is that following Jesus is the way of service. 
the way of service. And in our passage today, Jesus contrasts very clearly the way of, his way of service with the world's way of power. The way of service and the way of power. I'm just going to, I want us to look from the passage and compare and contrast those two ways. That's the big thing I want to do is we're going to start looking at what the way of power is. And then we'll look at Jesus' way, which is the way of service. What is power? I don't know what you think of when you think of power. The, the dictionary defines it as being able to control outcomes or situations or people. The way of power that Jesus is going to push back on that we're going to see here in a minute is this way of being in the world that was seeking after dominance, seeking after control, seeking after results, seeking after outcomes. These are all things that we interact with every day. People want to control. We want to control outcomes. We want to control results. I don't know about you. I want to be in control of things. Right now I'm in control very practically of how long my sermon goes. I have control <laughs> over that. It's a, a controlled outcome that I have power over how long this sermon I can't control, Mark. <laughs> You're right. I can't control how long you stay. But I can try. <laughs> and Jesus shows us, we see in the way that Mark tells the story here, two things about the way of power. Living in this way of life, a way of being in the world that's oriented around dominance and control and being able to, to, to have power. And it's introduced here by Jesus for the third time in these three chapters predicting that he's going to go and die. He did it at the beginning of chapter 8, and he did it in chapter 9, and here in chapter 10, he predicts again, and this time it's the most explicit, and he actually says, we. In the past, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. Now he's like, hey, we're going up to Jerusalem. So you can almost feel like the disciples should be getting it at this point. Like, we're getting closer. They're in Jericho. It's right down the mountain from Jerusalem. They're like, we're getting there. And Jesus says, we're going up, and I'm going, I'm going to die. And then what happens, and there was some laughter as Linda read this, because it's Amazing what happens, right? He says this to them. He says, hey, for the third time, very plainly, I am going to Jerusalem to be killed by the Gentiles and by the Jews. And then James and John come up to him and they say this in verse 35. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. It's, it's amazing. It's like a blank check. It's like my son comes up and he goes, I want you to do whatever I want. I'm like, no, absolutely not. Jesus is a lot nicer than that. But it's just like they're just, can you imagine like if you're a boss and your employee just walks into your office and is like, hey, boss, I want you to do whatever I ask. It's like, well, no, that's not going to happen. So Jesus says to them, okay, well, what, what do you want? Us, what do you want from me? And this is what they want. They said, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Now, what are they, what are they thinking? What are they asking for? They identified in chapter 8 that Jesus is the Messiah. And in messianic expectations of Old Testament and Jewish way of thinking, Jesus was a political Messiah. He was coming and he was going to go up to Jerusalem. He was going to kick out the Romans. He was going to set up shop. He was going to become like the ruler, right? We talked about this in the first part of this series, that he was going to make Israel great again. He's coming back to reset up shop, to sit on the throne and be able to run the kingdom again, restore the glory to Israel. And so in that thinking... Everyone in, in Judaism would be thinking, if you're with the Messiah, when he comes into Jerusalem and sets up shop, what gets to happen to you? You get a cabinet post. 
This is what they're asking for. Like, think about if you're with a political candidate who's running to be the president of the United States, and you come into his office, and you're like, hey, when you're president, I want to be the secretary of state, right? You know this happens, right? This is how government works in our country. People get promised things for, you know, for, 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 for giving their support. This is what they're asking. We're here, we're helping you, we're supporting you, we're following you. When you're in power, when you're in power, we want to sit on your left and on your right. We want, I, th- I imagine John's like, I want to be the secretary of Homeland Security. And James is like, I want to be the Secretary of Transportation. I don't know. Whatever they want to be, right? They want to be on the cabinet. They want power. They want a share of what Jesus is going to have. And they're jockeying for control. They're jockeying for position, right? The, the, the image here is that Jesus is walking down the road and the disciples are behind him. And it actually says that they were like amazed and afraid in verse 32, they're like falling behind amazed and afraid. And John, James and John are like, oh wait. And they run up to Jesus and they're like, hey boss, can, can you just right now, can you just tell me, can you promise me that I'm going to be the secretary of whatever? And the other disciples understandably are like annoyed at this. Right? They're indignant because they're like, well, I want to be that. I, why, why, do you, why should you get to have the power? I want to have, you can see that power, the first thing that we see about the way of power is that the way of power is a way of pursuit. It's this constantly running after power, looking for it, trying to collect it, trying to find more and more power. That's what James and John are doing. And that's why the other disciples are annoyed because power is a zero-sum game. If you have it, I don't. Right? If I'm in control of how long the sermon goes, you're not in control of that. It's a zero-sum game. And so the idea is that if we want to have power, we have to take it. We have to run and get it and take it from you. If you have it, i got to take it. And this is what James and John are doing. They're pursuing it. There's a lot of different kinds of power that we can pursue. There's positional power. You can pursue a new position of power at work or in politics or in the church. There's physical power. I have physical power over my children. Right? When Knox decides he doesn't want to go to bed, I say, I'm in control of this situation, and I pick him up and I take him. There's a physical power that we can try to take. We can pursue financial power. Right? Money talks. Money is power in a lot of cases in our society, and we can be chasing after that. We can be wanting to have more money so that we have more power, and we're chasing that. We want to be able to be in control. And we know that oftentimes the more money we have, the more ability we have to control outcomes, right? The power is controlling outcomes, then we chase financial gain for power. There's also relational power that we chase. In, in every relationship, there's, there's someone who is controlling the outcomes that happen in that relationship, And we jockey for our relational position to be able to control that, to push the other person around, to get what we want. And sometimes that's not overt. That's not James and John saying like, hey, we want power. We do that through the back door. You know that, right? We We find small ways to be able to manipulate and create the outcomes that we want in relationships. Because there's nothing that we hate more than powerlessness. You know that feeling? Powerlessness. (laughs) Not just like, Electrical powerlessness is bad, but like not being able to create the outcome you want. Right? Somebody else has their hands on the steering wheel. You have any backseat drivers in the room? You hate that, right? You're like, oh, you should have turned that. Right? We, it, it, there's a feeling of fear and panic that grips us when we are out of control, when we do not have the ability to make sure that what we want to happen, what we think is best, what we think is right, will happen, and we react in many ways, the way James and John react, with a pursuit, 
we go on this hunt to get back the power that we want to be able to control the outcome. And part of this way is that we assume that the solution to our problems is for us to have power. Just take, write that sentence down and go home and think about it. We assume that the solution to our problems is for us to have power. If I, was in, if I was king for a day, I would solve the problems, right? How many of you have said that? If I was boss, if I was king, if I was president, if I was leader, I would, I would be the one to control the correct outcomes. That what, what we should get is power in order to create the outcomes that we want. We think that that's good for us. And we're pursuing it. But in reality, this pursuit of power is, is at the root of so much brokenness in our lives. When we pursue, it's in church and in government and in family and in relationships. Our pursuit of power causes brokenness as we try to grab it. Right? You try to grab power and what happens to the other person? They become indignant because they want the power. Power struggles. You just think about how it plays out in your life. Think about the organizations that you're in, the jobs that you're in, the people you work for. Right? You might have some Enneagram 8s in the room who like power and they just take the power that they want and then they control outcomes. But some of you, you, just, you are strong-willed people. You go and you take power when you're in an organization or in a group. Or in, and there's others of us that are more subtle and try and take it from the back door, <laughs> try and control your boss from a more subtle position. What about in politics? Do you see how this plays out in politics? The assumption that if we have power that will solve our problems? That if we could only have our guy as the governor, if we could only have our guy as the president, if we could only have our men and women on the Supreme Court, then our problems would be solved. If we could get power, then things would be good. Do you see that? Do you feel that? Have you said that in the last three years? If we could only have, if we could just have power. We think that power is what we need to solve our problems. In relationships that you're in, in your marriage, in your family, with your friends. Where, where are you pursuing power over other people to get the outcomes that you want? This is the first way the first facet of the way of power is the pursuit of it. And you see James and John doing that. But there's another aspect to it. And Jesus calls this out a lot more clearly, right, in verse 42. He says, after he deals with James and John, which I'd love to deal with that. We don't have time. It's a fascinating conversation about baptism and drinking a cup. But then he calls his disciples to him. And you've seen this pattern over and over in Mark, right? Something happens and then Jesus calls all of his disciples aside and he tells them what he wants them to know about what just happened. James and John did something. He calls his disciples and this is what Jesus wants them to know. Verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers, those, who, those people who have power of the Gentiles, what do they do? They lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. The first way of power is pursuing it, but the second way of power is the abuse of power. Because no exercising of power is human neutral. Right? Every time you make a decision, every time you do something where you control an outcome, that affects other people. Right? Just, just use my little sermon example, right? The longer I talk, I have control over that. That affects you in some way. 
You may not think that your decisions matter, but everything that you do, everything you have power over affects other people. Every decision you make is not human neutral. It affects people in different ways. And what Jesus is saying is that in the world, the way we use power is a way that hurts and harms other people. That power is very often used to manipulate, destroy, and hurt people. We've talked multiple times over the last couple of two months maybe about the Mars Hill podcast. This is like a case study in the abuse of power. You have power, it gets abused. We want power, we pursue it, and then Jesus is saying, you know what happens most of the time when people get power? They abuse it. They use it to manipulate, to get their own way. We use it for our own good or the good of our party or the good of our family or the good of our group. We want We create the outcomes that we want without thinking about the fact that the outcomes we want often are not outcomes that are good for everyone. And that's how we use power. And what's interesting is that coercive methods, powerful methods, even for good ends, can be evil. I don't think we think about that. This is what Jesus is saying. The way the Gentiles do it is they take their power and they do whatever they want with it. And Jesus is saying, That's not good. This abuse of power where we lord what we have over someone else. It's an interesting phrase, lording over. I was looking up just some examples of it. Every ton of the examples that I found talked about siblings, where the older brother or the older sister lords it over. I'm the oldest of four. My little brother's here today. Little brother. See, I didn't say brother. I said little brother. (laughs) Lording it over him. Right? You see how subtle this is. With our anywhere that we have power, we act superior. That's lording it over. We know that we, we know in the cases where we have power that the other person can't touch our power, and we like that. And we act in ways that we are superior, where we're hurting them, or we're making decisions that benefit us and not them. This can be the power of information, things that you know that someone else doesn't know. This can be the power of things you have that someone else doesn't have. Or just straight up control of situations or relational control, positional control. If you're a boss, you have power over your employees. How do you use it? Do you lord it over? Jesus is saying most of us do. (laughs) Most people do. Positional leadership, parents and bosses and leaders and politicians. Political power, friends, is almost always coercive power by definition. The definition of politics is activities associated with governance, especially the debate or conflict among those having or hoping to achieve power. Politics is by definition coercive power. When we seek political power, what we're seeking is to coerce other people. We're seeking to do exactly the thing that Jesus here says not to do. Relational, lording it over. You have more social capital than some people. You have a group of friends and you're on the inside. What about those people on the outside? How do you relate to those people? The tentacles of this are everywhere. And the way that we are lured into using and abusing and seeking our Power. One of the ways I've seen this a lot when I was um, back, most of you know, I worked for a camp for a while and um, 
I worked with a few different leaders, and I remember a moment when a leader called me into into talk with him about something that that was happening or something I had done, and he looked at me and he said, "I'm just so disappointed in you." The leaders say that all the time. You know what that is? That's relational manipulation. In most cases, I want to leverage the respect you have for me to get you to do something by making you feel bad. And so I swore off using that. <laughs> There's many other ways that I manipulate and lord things over, but I swore that one off. <laughs> because using the word disappointment in a leadership context is almost always lording it over and manipulative. But we don't even think about it. We do it all the time. I've heard parents say it to their kids all the time. I've heard leaders and pastors say it about their, we say it all the time. It's lording it over. See, see how deep this runs in our hearts? We love to have power. I just want you to ask you to consider that. Where do you find yourself pursuing power? Where do you find yourself lording it over other people? Because Jesus then says something very strong. There's very few places where Jesus is maybe as clear as this. Verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. He says, that's the way of power. I'm going to invite you into a different way of living. Not that way. (laughs) One commentator says, At no place do the ethics of the kingdom of God clash more vigorously than with the ethics of the world than in the matters of power and service. At no place do the ethics of God's kingdom clash more with the ethics of the world than power and service. Jesus is not rejecting power itself, but the way of power, this way of pursuing and lording over and manipulating And he just says, it's not a command. He just says, this is the way it works in my kingdom. In my kingdom, we don't do that. We don't lord things over people. We don't follow the way of power. Instead, we follow a different way. And this is what he describes in verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. This is a different way of life. A couple people I read pointed out that this idea that a slave would be first would probably be to the hearers as ridiculous as the camel going through the eye of the needle. Like this is like very jarring. <laughs> like a slave first? What are you even talking about? It makes no sense at all. But this is the way that Jesus is inviting us to embrace a different way of life. A way that is very much in contrast with the way that all other society works where we reject the need to be in control, where we reject the need to dominate, where we consider ourselves a slave. What's a slave? A slave is somebody that exists for someone else, who has no power, who exists for other people. And this is, Jesus says, this is the way I measure greatness in my kingdom. I measure greatness by servitude. How, we measure greatness in a lot of ways. Jesus says, no, no, I measure greatness by servitude. Not by outcomes, not by positional titles, not by money, not by whose kids turn out the best, not by who has the best morals. I measure greatness by servitude. It's an amazing and incredibly clear statement about the way that God works in his kingdom. It's important to notice that Jesus doesn't say to go do acts of service. I think most of us read this and we read, because it's so much easier (laughs) to read this as, go do acts of service. He doesn't say that. What does he say? 
He says, you must be a servant. You must be a slave. Right? This is the difference between activities and identity. I moved to a house with a lot of trees. I've cut down some trees. I am not a lumberjack. Cutting down trees with my newly purchased chainsaw does not make me a lumberjack. Going and doing acts of service does not make one a servant. A servant is an identity, a way of interacting with the world, a way of seeing the world as being here for others. And so this is not a command, it's not an invitation, it's not a statement that the way of Jesus is the way of doing service. It's the way of being a servant. I don't have time to break that down, but I want you to, just, I want you to take that home and consider what the differences are between that that what we're being invited into is an entirely different way of thinking about ourselves and seeing ourselves in relationship to other people. It's not just a moral code. It's not just a list of to-dos, but an entire reorientation of the way that we view ourselves with respect to other people. There's a famous Puritan. I just I wanted to read this quote. It's a little long, but he's listing out what this would look like. Listen to what he says. This is William Law. To be a servant would be to condescend to all the weaknesses and infirmities of your fellow creatures, to cover their frailties, to love their excellencies, to encourage their virtues, to relieve their wants, to rejoice in their prosperities, to receive their friendship, to overlook their unkindness to forgive their malice, to be a servant of servants, and to condescend to do the lowest offices to the lowest of mankind. That's a way of life. <laughs> That's what Jesus is saying, the way of service, to relate to others and to the world for their good. And Richard Foster, who I've mentioned several times, he has a huge section of his chapter on the discipline of service where he cautions about how easy it is to do service without being a servant. Right? He gives all the reasons why we could do it. We often do service because we want the applause. We want the recognition. Oftentimes we'll do it for results. Like, I'm willing to serve you as long as I get the result that I want, as long as my serving you gets you somewhere that I want you to go. He said, or, or doing service without being a servant will, will be very selective about who it chooses to serve rather than indiscriminately opening up ourselves to serve whoever Jesus brings into our path. Or that we, we serve when we feel like it, but not when we don't feel like it. Slaves don't have that luxury. Sometimes he says we meet needs even when, the, when, those, uh, when meeting those needs is not wanted. <laughs> because that will bring something back for ourselves. Because ultimately, doing service without being a servant will fracture communities because it's about me and what I want. And I'm using the posture of Service, but I'm not a servant. So here's some ways, I just want to, before we move to the final point, I want you to see a few ways that it would look like to live a life that's practicing the way of being a servant. This is a discipline. This is why we're doing this in a spiritual discipline. So you don't just become a servant because it's fun, right? It takes discipline. But things like, and again, these are not like little things you can just check off the to-do list, right? What if we, what would it look like to see this church 
and come into this room and engage with our community groups and without seeing that as something that's there to meet our needs. That the community here, that we exist for the community rather than the community existing for us. Richard Foster suggests the service of hiddenness. What are the most hidden ways that you can find to serve other people? It cuts back at our desire to be recognized. Or the service of small things. We've used the word ordinary a lot around here in the last two and a half years. Caroline's laughing at me. Sorry, Jim. We like to do service that looks good, that feels good. What about the most mundane ways of serving one another, sending that text or showing up at someone's house or picking someone up? One of the things I've been trying to do, I forget when I, when I started doing this, but I, um, our house is near a four-way stop. And so I just, since we moved there, um, I've been trying to force myself, this is a stupid thing to do, to try and force myself to actually do things that matter, okay? Because I'm not building myself up here. I'm like trying to force, I have to, I have to force myself to do this. Hear me say that. I'm forcing myself to like let every other person go at the four-way stop every time I go to it. Like the littlest way to be like, I'm gonna posture myself as a servant of the other people in this four-way stop. Like it, it's a silly, stupid thing, but I'm trying to train myself so that when I'm dealing with people at more significant levels where it's so much easier for me to just do whatever I want, that I'm, to see what, like the dis, there's little disciplines that we do to posture ourselves that way. Richard Foster suggests this one that's maybe one of the hardest things I've ever heard. <laughs> the discipline of guarding the reputation of others. Yikes. <laughs> You know, it's your responsibility as a Christian to guard the reputation of other Christians. Yes? We tend to think as long as what I'm saying is true, it's fine. No, Jesus says, Paul says, hey, it's our responsibility to guard each other's reputation. I forget the first time, I think it was in a Tony Rinky book when I first realized, like it first struck me that anything I say that tears someone down in your eyes is wrong. Anything. I mean, that... <laughs> That's an entirely different way of life, right? How many times today have you said something that torn someone else down in someone else's eyes? I've done it today already, multiple times. We do, this is like a servant, a slave would say, no, I'm here to guard your reputation, to cover your infirmities, to cover your failures, to forgive you. There's so many more. <laughs> the disciplines of hospitality and listening to one another, of bearing each other's burdens, of being with children, right? of being with people that give you nothing back, of speaking the gospel out loud to others because they need to hear it. There's, the applications of this posture of service are inexhaustible for us as Christians and Jesus is calling us to this way of life. And you say, man, this is so unnatural. It's so unnatural. It places us at odds with everything that we know, every system we're engaged in, every workplace, every election, everything we exist in says the way of power is right. And Jesus says, it shall not be so with you. It's something we need to consider if we're going to follow the way of Jesus. And there's two things that are absolutely required if we're gonna do this. And they're here in verse 45, right? It's one of these beautiful texts that writes its own sermon. 
Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right? This isn't just a way of life, an abstract way of life. This is the way of the Lord. This is the way that God acts. God is a giving God. He came to give and to serve. That's what God does. That's why this is the way of Jesus, because this is how God is, that he bought us back. That the, the only way that we're ever going to do this very unnatural thing is by experiencing the renewal and the amazing thankfulness of Jesus having done that for us. If you personally haven't experienced and don't experience on a daily basis the givingness of God for you as a ransom, you will never be able to live this way because it's too hard. But Jesus did do that. And he does do that because God is a giving, serving God. And the way of service is a way of life and love and renewal and peace rather than the way of power that leads to brokenness and death. This is what Jesus did. God didn't lord, this is Philippians chapter two again. Jesus did not lord over, lord his godness over us, but he became a servant. And when we embrace the way of power, we're spitting in his face. And he's inviting us, no, come and it shouldn't be like that with you. Come and do it the way that I do it. And we need to experience that. The second thing after we've experienced this is we need to daily reorient ourselves to what Jesus has done. Weekly reorient ourselves to the way that Jesus' kingdom works as a kingdom of service. And if we're not daily reorienting ourselves, you will inevitably slide right back into the way of power and you will begin searching and pursuing and abusing power in every area of your life if you are not daily reorienting yourself to the giving, serving, loving God. I'll just close by pointing out this final section. Go home and read it. It's the story of Bartimaeus, the Chapters 8 through 10 in Mark are bracketed by two healings of blind people. It's not by accident. Again, Mark is an incredibly good author. And he bracketed this entire section by the healing of two blind men. And in this one, it's so interesting because Bartimaeus is asking Jesus for something. The same way James and John were asking for something. And Jesus responds the same way he, said, he responded to James and John, right? He said to James and John, what do you want me to do for you? And you have this man, Bartimaeus, crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus looks at him and says, what do you want me to do for you? And he, he doesn't say, I want to sit on your cabinet. He says, I'm broken, heal me. Bartimaeus is the is the model disciple. Jesus has spent three chapters, Mark has spent three chapters explaining how Jesus explained what it meant to be a disciple. And Bartimaeus is the perfect example of this. Somebody who knows that they need mercy and comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I need mercy. I need to be healed. And the last verse in this section is fantastic. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. We've seen other people get healed and then they go off. Bartimaeus gets healed and what does he do? He's like, all right, I'm here. I'm going on to Jerusalem. And he follows him on his way, on the way of the cross, on the way of dependence, on the way of listening, on the way of examination, on the way of community, on the way of simplicity and the way of service. Bartimaeus follows him on the way and that's what we're called to do. 
come to Jesus begging for mercy and then follow him when he heals us. Father, I thank you for these stories. I thank you for Jesus who came as a servant, who came as a slave. God, convict us. Convict us of our living in the way of power in our workplaces, in our families, in our relationships, in our jobs, in our country. Seeking power, thinking that by having power we can have life. And yet here you are giving out life freely through service. Give us eyes to see and hearts to hear and lives to respond that we would follow you in the way of Jesus. We pray it in his name.